We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Growing up as a young Arsenal fan, there's very little you can dream bigger than providing a key assist to win the North London Derby. And on Sunday, Emil Smith-Rowe, Bukayo Saka, and Harry Kane did just that. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the Kabakman Center Yankee Gunner. Goals and assists for the Hayland boys. But it's not just the Hayland boys. That's right, growing up as an Arsenal fan, you dream big of contributing in the North London Derby. And Harry Kane was able to do that beautiful assist for Bukayo Saka's goal. And I, for one, enjoyed the shit out of it. What a day! What a day. North London, checking, checking, still red, still red. Tottenham, you know, we, we sing that song, what do we think of Tottenham? Shit. But like, they really, really took it to heart on the day. They really, really wanted to show us just how shit they could be. Uh, I think it's one of those days, right, where you listen to every podcast, you watch every YouTube video, you read every blog, you read every article, you even seek out uh, Nuno Dispiritus saying to, I think uh, 7 a.m. kickoff called him that, Nuno Dispirited. Um you seek out his post-match comments where he basically said without saying that the players suck and he picked the wrong players because they couldn't execute the plan. There were funny tweets about Harry Kane celebrating with the empty away, clapping the empty away section after the game. I mean, a day where you want to just soak every little moment up. Uh, Ian Wright celebrating, and, and obviously you've already listened to the Arscast by now, I'm sure, but you, you've you heard the mix that Andrew made for the Ian Wright celebrations. Just beautiful uh, and a wonderful birthday present for, for Andrew. So happy birthday, Andrew, again. Um, but that's it. That's what it's all about. And so uh, we celebrated uh, throughout the day yesterday, celebrating again today, and we're going to break down every last piece of what was a brilliant derby, a day th- that really just brings everyone together. There are very few days as fun, whether it's on social media or in the pubs or just being an Arsenal fan, than after a big win in the derby. And that is exactly what we got. And here to discuss it with me is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pazman Pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! And Tim, you can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. And uh, Scott will be with us this week with an analytics pod, but I want to say thanks to Scott, who's doing uh, great work, as ever, putting out the data that, that behind uh, this beautiful performance and this beautiful day. So much to celebrate. Uh, Tim, we didn't get to talk to you on the Instant Reaction Pod, so I will talk to you first. I think, you know, coming out of the international break, 
I think our sort of most circumspect and thoughtful analysis was it's as bad a start to the season as possible, but there are mitigating circumstances. So now Mm -hmm. we joke the season starts now, but there was urgency. And 1-0 wins over relegation-threatened teams was sort of the bare minimum required, but we got there. And it gave us a platform for this day. I think we all felt going into this day that it had sliding doors ramifications in terms of what it could mean based on the various outcomes. And I think in terms of the absolute best-case scenario, this is as close as you come to it. So I just want to take the macro view for a second. In terms of the raw emotion, the joy it brings, the way it just washes away some of the sort of dull, sour, down notes of football of late and the atmosphere in the Emirates and just the whole circumstance surrounding this, how big does this feel from a momentum standpoint for the club? Yeah, well, just um, just imagine if it had gone the other way around. Imagine well, we lost. It. Yeah, 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 exactly. Imagine we lost this game three one. We'd all be sitting here talking about is Arteta going to get sacked? Uh, what's going on at the club? We'd probably talk about the ownership and things like that. Um, so that tells you, like, it's it's um, it's almost. Uh, if this is an inappropriate way to describe it, really, but like it, it's almost like a schizophrenic. Or, or no, sorry, like bipolar type game, isn't it? It's like it's either brilliant or awful, um, and yeah, the the range of outcomes is quite large, based on things that are well, I say marginal, but the the what what really um, what really supercharges this victory is the manner of it. Um, don't get me wrong, we'd have all been very happy with a 1-0, uh, you, you know, a bit like the Jamie Derby. one goal in 90 minutes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, or even a bit like the Derby, the last Derby went where we kind of gritted out a 2-1 and we deserved it, but it was very nervy in the last few minutes and everything like that. It, it's the manner of this that really, really puts the seal on it. It reminds me of, um, I think it was 2009-10, we beat uh, Spurs at home 3-0 um, that day when Fabregas scored straight from centre. And it, it felt a bit like that, where we just looked so much better than they did um, and just fully deserved to be 3-0 up at half time, and then just kind of saw it out in the second half. And it in in terms of momentum, it's absolutely huge. And we all knew it would be. We've all, been, we've all had like a red circle around this game in the calendar. I mean, you always do for the North London derby anyway, but for the context of this, we have always said that this would be maybe a bit of a judgment day for Arteta, which is not to say that now we've won this game, everything is absolutely marvellous and Arteta's brilliant and will surely lead us to glory. But it's it's as much... Um, with, with derbies, a lot of the joy is actually in the absence of misery. Um, if that makes sense, because you realise how miserable it is to lose them. And a lot of the emotion is bound up in that relief that it's not you, that you can go on social media and post all the memes and things like that. Um, and, you know, you, your your workplace is a nice place on Monday morning and everyone avoids you. And, you know, I know I had several emails already that were like, oh, you must have had a good weekend. You know, it's 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 just one of those. And, and it is just absolutely one of those where if we'd have lost this game in any manner, it would have felt like an absolute crisis. But now we're talking about momentum. Do you remember after the Norwich game, I kind of said we won't know for a few weeks whether this was the first building block or a pretty scrappy win against a crap team. Mm-hmm. And we can probably say it was a building block now because uh, we got slightly better against Burnley and then we got much better here. Um, and obviously, you know, we've got a really difficult game against Brighton at the weekend and things like that. But yeah, I mean, d- derbies always create, the winning derbies rather, 
always creates that kind of that positive emotion and momentum that this one did a little bit more so though because of the differing trajectory of the teams right now and because of the manner of the victory mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah and i mean it is it is a manner of victory and an emotional moment that lifts the collective heads of the club and the fans away this this dour looking down, how close to the bottom are we? Mid table existence thing that we've been dealing with, and you know whether we've we've sort of bought into that or not, it lifts you again. I found myself for the first time in a long time looking at the table. What's the points mm-hmm. difference? What can we really do? And suddenly, you know, you're seeing United blow it and lose a game, and the hilarious recriminations from Bruno Fernandez and you know Cristiano Ronaldo getting him transferred to to whatever Siberian club he can because he didn't let him take the penalty. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly, it has you dreaming like yep. top four and possibilities, which I, I don't feel has been in there for us. For yeah, indeed. You start thinking things like, well, Leicester look a bit crap. Um, West Ham didn't really um, didn't really expand their squad and they've got Europe and Spurs have got Europe. And mm-hmm. yeah, th- those are exactly the ramifications you start to go into. Like the, the world of possibilities opens up after a win like this. And if you remember a few pods ago, and some people didn't particularly agree with this take, which was one of my takes, which makes sense. But like I'd said that Arsenal need to restore relevance again because I want to look at the United score and the Chelsea score and the, you know, the, the Leicester score and see in Liverpool and see how we're faring against them. And and this, this game had me doing that again. And, and I, look, we're a long way from where we need to be still, but you can start to dream of that coming back. And Clive, the, the funny thing is it's a win for the players. It's a win for Arteta. We'll come on to all of that, but I think it's a win for the project first and foremost. And I know that that is a word that people are so tired of hearing, but I don't think it's a coincidence. And I kind of wonder if Arteta did this by design. I don't think he would because you're, you're coaching a game and you're trying to win it. But we finished the game with every single new signing on the pitch. Tavares, Sambi, Ramsdale, White, Odegaard, Tomiyasu. They were all on the pitch. And this summer we spent a lot of money. And a lot of people, myself included, wondered, did we spend it in a way that moves the needle? Is it more of a longer-term thing? Is it a short-term thing? And I think we're seeing it can be both a long-term and a short-term thing. But Clive, this, this win, first and foremost, feels like a win to, to start to confirm the project in the sense of, we need the academy kids to start contributing. And they did. We need the new signings to be the upside that we hope they can be. And they look like it. And just that little bit of extra magic from the sort of fading senior players like Nobamyang, we got that. And the picture looked really clear on this day. So for you, you know, before we get into the tactical nuance, and we will, and the individual player performances, we're going to celebrate the hell out of everybody and everything. Is this, is this a huge validating moment? And there will need to be more of them, but a huge validating moment for the project itself. Yeah, I think it's all about direction and direction of travel and and clarity in where we're going. And there's been a few things over the international break. Edu came out, posted the, uh, the transfer window and came out and said, you know, where we're heading, the players we bought, the ages, et cetera, what you want to do, the academy. Perma exactly did a great interview uh, on a podcast last week. I can't remember the name, apologies. Podcast last week where he spoke about templates of players, transitional players, that sort of explained this Libra thing, and he explained the project where and how he supports the first team. And I just, you know, I, I'm someone that looks at this anyway, you know what I mean? And I, I love change, and, I, and I'm, I'm all right with it. Once you work out 
what we're trying to do. You have to say, you have to, I believe, it's right to change your perspective on how you want to see things. Because these actions already happen. We bought six players, 23 and under. We've changed 30 players in the last two years. So it's already happened. You can choose to support Arsenal like we were an invincible team if you want to, but we no longer are. There's no longer two oil teams in in our in our league. You know there wasn't then. There is now. Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, and and so the landscape's changed. So you, in my opinion, you have to adapt your the way you look at the game according to the landscape, your competitive landscape. It doesn't mean that we were super efficient. It doesn't mean that we weren't dumb. It doesn't mean we missed opportunities in the transfer market. It doesn't mean that we didn't sell at the right time to recuperate funds. We wasted things, so much money and so much opportunity. That's We all know this, and we've podcasted for five years on this. But we are where we are now, and I've said before, we've, it's been like an acceptance of where we are. Now let's do something about it. And I'm so pleased because I've learned a lot through speaking to you, Elliot, and Tim Paul about resale value, value, squad building, and to see the way we've approached it and to see it sort of manifest itself in the way we've done it. You look at all those players, they've even been signed or re-signed by Arteta, and you're thinking, yeah, this is good. We didn't have the human connection to the project, to the team, to the club. Not many of us were fortunate enough to get into the ground during the pandemic. If you are a journalist or know somebody or got those 2,000 tickets, if you're one of those lucky ones, great. But that connection, I don't care what anyone says, to look at whether you watched it at the ground, in the pub, on the screen, wherever you watched it, when you see that, it feels different. And we never had that versus City, versus Chelsea, versus Spurs, versus Man United, the cup finals. We never had any of that. All the big days were just distant. They were clinical, doctor's surgery, football matches, difficult to connect to, and defeats are sometimes easier to connect to. And now we're seeing something else. And that, for me, is the joy of it, right? We're all fans. People are all saying, oh, yeah, I'm so glad he's changed this, he's done this, he's proved I was right. That bullshit. We're all fans. We're all right. We're all right because we all want the team to win. And now we're winning. We are now right about what we thought about. Because he's either changed what we like or something's happened, so we're all right. When it comes down to it, we're all fans and we all want this day. Let's just enjoy it for what it is. There's going to be some rocky ones coming, and that's the test of a fan, really, when the rocky ones come. But I will well, say to you, oh, sorry, go ahead, mate. No, 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 after you. No, I will, I will, I was, you know, I will say to you from a a chain cycle perspective, from a, a recognition where we are, and this, this is the first gentle steps on where we want to be. And we know there's other layers to come when the players go, a couple of squads left to go. When they go, we can go again. And I think we can all see there's an exciting future ahead if this is allowed to maintain itself, which I hope it is. So I think we all feel the same, really. I, I, I'm almost excited. I'm excited again for the future. Yeah, it's, it's like we're... <clears throat> The analysis is like we're in a car, and there are two different ways we can drive to try to get to our destination. And I might see one direction as the right. I think that'll get us there faster. I think that's the better route. And someone else might say, no, this is the right route. If we get to the destination on time and successfully, we're both going to be happy, whichever route we take. 
So we can debate the, the, the path to get there. We can debate, I don't want this player, I do want that player, I don't like this formation, I do like that formation. But we're debating that from a point of all wanting days like this, big wins, celebratory moments, and joy. I mean, you know, debating the football is fun. And it's not a new thing, it's not a social media thing, it's been around forever. But joy is fun too. And I, I, the funny thing is, I think the debate intensifies when the joy diminishes in some respects. We haven't had nearly enough joy, so we've had a hell of a lot of debate. But now we have joy, and I'm here for it. And I should mention, by the way, we have a lot of joy. Arsenal won 8-1 on aggregate yesterday because the women won 5-0 over City. And we would do more coverage of that. To be fair, Tim has a fantastic podcast. He already does for our blog on that. So, you know, it's very well covered by Tim, of course. We'll continue to do more on that in the future. Um, Paul, I'll stick with you just for a second on this project thing, and then we will get into the, the specific game moments and, and the specific performances. But, like, look... Y- The problem with building a squad is you don't get immediate answers about whether you're going the right direction. And even a big win, you know, or a heavy defeat doesn't give you an immediate answer. But the fact that we did finish with all the new signings on the pitch and the fact that they're all contributing in ways that are encouraging and they're all at ages where you'd think they could go up from here and that Martin Odegaard looks like the steal of the summer. Like, whether it's Arteta and Adu working in tandem, you know, or Adu picking the players and Arteta picking the system. Like, you know, you look at Tomiyasu. Tomiyasu is a classic example of how you want the director of football relationship to work, right? A player who, in a different system, might not be a player. You know, he's not going to do what Trent Alexander-Arnold does. But my goodness, in the way we build with that sort of 3-2-5 and where he tucks in and provides support and, and uses his center back skills to win aerial duels and win all the, you know, the one-on-one duels and, and defends well and gives the ball to the players who are better to progress it, you can't ask for a better fit than that. So the system and the squad building look like they are working in tandem really effectively. And I'm wondering if you look at that game yesterday as sort of the best exemplar, the best, the sort of um, paragon of what we're we're trying to create with this group of players that we've assembled. Yeah, I think it's an absolute benchmark for what you want in a performance. And I think as well, the other thing that was... Uh, uh, exhilarating about it was that it was so crystal clear how we were playing and how we wanted to play. Um, it was scintillating football. It was, as Tim alluded to, uh, it wasn't just the result. Uh, we tore them a new one. And by new one, I mean wrecked them. Um <laughs> And we, 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 we wrecked them or tore <laughs> them a new one. <laughs> Can you clarify that even further? Uh, both. Got it. At okay. the same time. Uh, like we eviscerated them, we decimated them, we chopped them into 10. Um, and it was absolutely thrilling. Um, and I think it was an expression to your point. Obviously, not everything's perfect and wonderful and whatever. But a few months ago, we wondered if everything behind the scenes was terrible and awful and and like everybody was bad and nobody had a direction. And... You know, seasons are long. Uh, we'll have more chances to to uh, prove one way or another who we are. But you come out of this game and you say, that was an expression on the pitch of alignment of the pitch between ownership, management, the director of football, uh, our manager for and on the pitch, the team, the selections, uh, the philosophy, the strategy. Um the other thing I was struck with after the game yesterday, and it's been a nagging feeling for me 
that uh, for a little while with this team was under Wenger uh, in the second half of his reign, the one thing I could always feel good about was if I was picking this, uh, picking a Premier League team again, I'd pick this team, right? It's a bit like you've been married for 5, 10, 15 years and you look across at your wife and you say, if I was picking my wife, I'd pick that wife. First off, it'll save you a lot of trouble administratively, um, and she'll take it a lot better if if you pick her a second time. But like, if you were coming back to the Premier League and saying you were a young man or woman picking a team, I'd pick this one. Uh, mm. You look at the players: Saka, Smith Rowe, Aubameyang, Martin Odegaard, uh, Tierney. Uh, Tommy Yasu, 120 million people in Japan watching the Premier League and watching Tommy Yasu, or at least a reasonable chunk of them. Uh, Gabrielle, Ben White, Ramsdale, uh, Thomas Party. You you look at those players and you say, yeah, like there, there's a player there for everybody, somebody to excite you, somebody to get the pulse going. Um, you look at other teams and like, I won't go around them all, but I, I'm not saying everybody would pick Arsenal, but I can see why a young person coming to football now, coming to the Premier League saying, I'm going to watch these teams for a couple of weeks, uh, hopefully the right weeks from, mm. from game zero Norwich onwards and say, fuck yeah, the, these guys look like they got a plan. They're young. Like this was the youngest team to win a North London derby in the Premier League hmm. uh, era for Arsenal. There are a couple of s- slightly younger teams who played. One drew, one lost, but no younger team has ever won uh, the North London London derby for Arsenal. And like it comes, kind of comes back to the project thing. And people may or may not like the term, but fuck them. Um, call it what what you want something's going on here it may not work it may be a glorious attempt and failure but man i can get behind what this is because it's a thing and it's clear and you know do you get it now gary neville do you see what the plan is do you see what the strategy is Mm -hmm. um this was absolutely thrilling scintillating and if I were picking a team as a young person, I'd pick this team. Yeah. I, I mean, if you are a young person, then I was you are one. going to have many years of watching this team grow together. If you're yeah. like us, um, you have to enjoy it while it lasts because who knows how much longer <laughs> we'll be around. Um, but setting, that, setting that aside. Um, Can I just add yeah. one quick thing? The idea oh, that, that Sack and Smith Rowe are having breakfast together saying, wouldn't it be cool if we scored in the North London Derby? And the other guy saying, yeah, that'd be really cool. Imagine if I could assist. And like, they actually had this conversation. What a yeah. bunch of 17-year-olds. And it's delicious. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. I wasn't scoring in the Derby at that age, that's for nope. sure. Um, I wasn't scoring anywhere, if we're being honest. Sorry. Yeah, I, I was a late bloomer. Um, so, Tim, but before we get into the tactics, you know, just 21 minutes and, and the performances, 21 minutes into the podcast, um, just a real quick point on this. The atmosphere at the Emirates was electrifying. And, I, I mean, it is it is interesting because Arteta has had big downs in his coaching career. He's had some big ups already. Let's not forget that. But they've almost all come, both of them without fans there. Mm-hmm. And in a way, he's been sort of inoculated from, or was prior to this season, inoculated from some of the, let's just say, 
less polite or less enjoyable aspects of being a coach when it's going wrong. But he was also denied the, the joy of it. And I think the shame of it is he starts this season and it goes about as terribly as possible. So he gets the extreme example, maybe not the most extreme because there's still some patience with him, but extreme example of what happens with fans in the ground when you're getting hammered. This was his first chance to get the opposite. And, and I'm happy for him to get that. And I'm happy for the players to get that. And I just wonder you know, how you think that dynamic affects sort of Arteta's mood, who he is as a coach, the players, their commitment to this project. Because you look at that picture they all took in the dressing room as a group after the game, and I'm sure somewhere, you know, like Roy Keane is furious or whatever. But like the 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 ability to have that feedback, that immediate visceral feedback, not just for the negative, but for the positive, I think is an absolutely critical part of not just being a fan, but being a player and a coach. And I'm wondering how you think that might influence the the developing, the, the building chemistry in the in the group. Yeah, well, I mean, you've only got to look at the comments of the man himself, of Arteta. He's he's clearly very interested in this because he's been talking about it a lot recently. And I, and I guess just as a, a kind of um, a, like a margin, a note in the margin of that, I'm usually very wary of saying that fans deserve things because I mean we don't really because sometimes yeah. you win sometimes you lose but i really i really think our supporters deserved uh, that victory yesterday because they've absolutely stuck with the team i've written about this um last week tap your bingo mug um just about like the improved atmosphere <laughs> and s- some of the reasons behind it so um I, I think part of it is just people being happy to be back in stadiums after a pandemic but i i do think there is something else there in terms of mm-hmm. th- this is a new team and we're not quite as jaded by their failures yet most of them <laughs> some of them haven't really had any failures yet when you look at players like Tommy Asu and Ramsdale who've been exemplary and that and it, you know I, I a bit like Clive was saying on the instant reaction pod right about um about the kind of the the bite with like we recognize that something new is happening and something we we've wanted that sense of renewal for quite a while so i do think there are things that are going in arteta's favor vis-a-vis the actual atmosphere with the fans because all last season we were talking about god can you imagine if fans were in like how grumpy this would be but actually it's probably done him all right to have that period when fans weren't there and then to have this now and my mind goes back to I think the second game under Arteta at home to Chelsea, well, we actually lost in the end, but I just remember the team getting a standing ovation because you could see something had changed in the application of the players. And then I think a month later, we beat Manchester United and he got that. And he's always out on the pitch, um, you know, at, at the away games so far. He's come over to the away enclosure at the end with the players um, it, it, it obviously really matters to him. And, you know, for a guy, he, he talks about soft factors a lot, right? Um, as much as we view him as a very kind of technical, tactical coach, he does talk about soft factors a lot. He talks about, you know, suffering um, and he talks about like energy and enthusiasm, like that stuff clearly matters to him. And uh, it, it's not quite as far as, you know, when Klopp first got to Liverpool and he did that, you know, had the, the player, you know, copying the Dortmund thing of having the players going up to the cop. Um, at the end with their hands joined and everything like that. But he wanted to harness the energy of the crowd. And, and I really think that, that it's it's more than just platitudes. Arteta's been saying this a lot recently, and, and I really get the sense. I don't get the sense that Arteta really does platitudes anyway. Um, I think he's quite a, quite a straightforward, serious guy. I think you can kind of take him at his word. 
um, with things. I don't think he just said, I, I think he doesn't say a lot of things, but I don't think he just says things for the sake of it. Mm. And he, he's talked about this constantly and you can see what it meant at the end as well when he when he goes up to all of the players and then, uh, you know, the photographer, Stuart, um, and how happy he was in that moment. And, and I really think he knows that getting the crowd on side or at least again harnessing that energy and giving the players energy i he he clearly sees that as very important and and he's a very young guy tim right he's just a couple of years removed from being a player himself so like and like you look at what he's been through in the last year or so and if he's had any luck at all it was mostly bad luck and like suddenly he's back with the crowd, with the supporters, and he's praying that it's nothing like kind of what the pundits and social media is telling him. And lo and behold, he shows up and they're all there for him. Like if, if people think that's platitude, can you imagine if you're a young 30-something-year-old managing your first job and you show up and there's 60,000 people willing you on? Mm. Like that's that's something you've never experienced it's one thing to be a player in a team, but to be the manager of that team and all your work is done now for the summer and you show up and you're in the stadium and they're there for you, that must be like, that's nothing any of us have ever experienced in our yeah. lives, I suspect. And he didn't, he, he said, and we made a little bit of fun of him for saying this, but you know, in the days following the Man City defeat, he said something like, they were my best days ever. And then you football. look in his eyes when he says that, when you say about platitudes, like... It, that's a very low-key, humble way he talks. He's he's yep. very connected to what he's talking about. And I don't think he's talking about on the pitch because there wasn't much on the pitch. It was everybody and everything around him within the club, within his family, within the supporters, the, the actual real-life supporters he had a connection with. You could see he was affected and moved is what yeah. I saw. Yeah, and again, to, to reference something Clive said on the Instant Reaction pod about Arsenal sticking with Arteta, giving him an authority with the players, it's it's probably done the same with the supporters, which is not to say that everyone loves him and thinks he's the guy, but I think every everyone, you know, exactly like Clive said about the players, you know, you, you can't, look, you're not going to manoeuvre this guy out, so, you know, you've got to make it work. Probably a similar deal for the fans. There's probably a message there that, like, that there's not really much point in grumbling <laughs> because it's probably not going to do anything so we might as well kind of back this and get behind this and yeah and and I, I do get the sense that energy like positive energy matters a lot to him you know when he said that those are the best days of his career so far because he realized how much everyone was bought in that obviously means a lot to him and I, th- I think he knows that supporter buy-in is at least a part of player buy-in as well. Well, and to be fair, look, as a manager, you have to manage all different kinds of egos and all different kinds of players and all different kinds of relationships. And I'm sure Arteta will develop that over time. But he came into a team that wasn't his team with difficult players to manage. You know, we don't have to relitigate, <laughs> taps, bingo, mug, th- that those players and those issues. But what he has now, one of the reasons I think he's probably more joyful and, and a little lighter and a little more upbeat is he's managing a group of players that don't have the same reason to be a skeptic of him. He doesn't have to win them over. They came in on his watch or their academy kids who probably grew up watching him play and are more than happy to play for him. You know, aside from maybe like Obamiang and Shaka, who both seem pretty bought in, the rest of the team is mostly his. So 
you know, he, he has a situation now where he can feel really at ease to do his job and do it to the best of his ability with players that should have every reason to want to work with him. Um, you know, I, I just think that it's it feels a lot more like football now. Beating Spurs feels a lot more like Arsenal football. The Emirates full and and cheering, you know, and singing full throated at the Derby. It just it just feels right. So, look, there's still a lot of results that have to come for any of this to be meaningful longer term. But as we always sort of talk about on the big days, football isn't just about where you finish at the end of the season or the trophies you hoist. It is about the big moments. And the, the one thing that I will say is that, to Arteta's credit, he has delivered some big moments, even with all the downtimes. Winning an FA Cup, beating Chelsea on Boxing Day, winning away at United, and, and some Derby victories that have been great, and this probably chief among them. So, Clive, we, we should get to the performance. I, I will just laugh, though. Uh, Tim, you always, you always say, you know, the most popular guy at the beginning of the season is the new signing. So, it's no wonder that the fans will be happy with the team when you have what, seven of them on the pitch at the end of the game, right? It's it's all new signings, and it feels all new and refreshed, and I think refreshed is the right word for it. We needed this to feel fresh, and it definitely does. And Clive, a, a lot of that comes from the the joy we get from our Halen players. When the academy players thrive, it is a different feeling. And I know that there are going to be some people that say, I don't care if they're from Halen or, you know, we signed them from Barcelona or we signed them from some team in the Norwegian league I've never heard of. When they pull on the shirt, I support them and I'm happy. Sure, great. I just think it is natural when a kid has spent his life growing up at Arsenal and we've known about them since they're little kids and they come into the team that way. They're just, there is something about that connection that feels special. And for Saka and Smith Rowe to be at the absolute heart of this victory and knowing what it means to them and feeling like they're part of the tapestry of the club right through, you know, to who they are as individuals. This is hail and supremacy. That's what this is. And it's funny, right? Because you have the sort of golden boy of the of the Spurs Academy flailing around and fading and wanting out and, you know, wishing he could be at Man City. And you have the two bright lights of the Arsenal Academy at least, you know, the current bright lights there are further, you know, more bright lights behind them, but in, in Saka and Smith Rowe really guiding Arsenal on the victory. So I want to focus on them for a minute. We had a 2-3 superiority in midfield. Spurs lined up with a, a straight line of three midfielders, and they just got bypassed. And it looked it looked awful. Tactically, they got it completely wrong. We exploited them. But, Clive, I, I think we have to start with Emil Smith Rowe, who for me... And, and and everyone's gonna have a different star, whether it's Odegaard or Saka or you know Tomiyasu. But for me, Smith Rowe is the star of the piece. Scores a goal, creates a goal for Aubameyang, and plays the pass that creates the goal for Saka. I thought he absolutely lived up to all the things I think he's capable of. So, do you want to maybe spend a minute and and celebrate the performance of the Halen kids, but especially Emil Smith Rowe, who I think you know with the ten on his back, the new contract in his pocket. Darby Day at home, and he steps up, and and he had all the character to dominate the game. Yeah, he, he did. And do you mind if I talk about tactically first, feeding into mm. Smith Rowe? Because no, I, I think that yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think that that whole area of the pitch, the two three we had versus their line no, of three, I think was, think, was a right? So I think there's 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 some things developing here tactically, and it comes back to something that we mentioned yesterday. I, I think people have been watching us, but I think they've been watching a team of a year ago, almost. There's almost like they don't know who we are. And I include the pundits, and I include some other teams in that. And so they watched. if you watch the Brentford game, basically they went long into two forwards, won the first ball, won the second ball, recycled, crossed, goals, pressure, physicality. 
I've watched Burnley try and do the same thing. We've now dealt with it because we've got people that can do it. I watched Spurs try to do the same thing, go over the top into that right-hand corner on Ben White. Ben White won his headers again. Tommy Asu, well, we know the rest of the story there. We're winning second balls. We're turning around. We're transitioning. It's as though the narrative of Arsenal, to say anything you like about Arsenal because we're crap, the, the, the analysts of the other teams have, have been listening to that. They haven't been looking at the changes and the potential and the fact we got, we've got people who can run, jump, and pass the ball, progress the ball, turn. To your, to your point about it. that, Clive, just real quick, in, in our preview of the Derby, we assumed that they'd line Sun up on the right because we assumed they'd know better than to put him on Tomiyasu, who we thought could shut him down. And nope. They, yeah, they, but they, I, they I, played but, right in North Strike. They did, and but I wasn't sure Lucas would play, actually, and Lucas is a good player. Mm. He's probably mm. one of their better players on the day. So by having him there, didn't really, they still had that pacey player to try to get in behind on that side, but they just didn't because we won the first ball, we won the second ball. And I think it's interesting because we've spent a little while now talking about our horseshoe of death, and but the last Burnley tried to do it. They dropped into a two in front to screen off Shaka and an Odegaard. It didn't really work. We got down the middle, but botched our breakaways. Spurs tried to do it, blocked the central areas rather than block the you know the outsides. We still got through, a bit risky at times, but we got through. Once we did, it was all over. And I think it's really interesting. They don't realise that we're quite good. We can we can go tight at the back. If you give us time with the ball, we can clip it, we can fizz it, because we've got good distributors at the back now. If you go big in the air, we can win the first ball. We win it. We do. We're actually getting better, you know. And these teams can have to look at us much more closely. They're being really thick, really being really thick. Now you have got players like Odegaard, Smith Rowe, Saka. Now I'm going to when they get it, they're off. They're off. They're turning. They got zigzag pictures. They're transitioning. That zigzag is key. You cut one way and then you chop. You cut back the other way and you break into space and you join in together. Tierney and, and Saka joining in. Man, this is this is good stuff. The energy, the pace. I mean, this was a transition masterpiece, this game was. And and Smith, Rowe and Saka absolutely in tune with Odegaard, with Aubameyang. I, I almost don't want to highlight any one particular player. The Halen players obviously... We're going to highlight them all. <laughs> yeah, the Halen, the Halen players obviously bring an, another reason for us to connect to the team. When you see two players that are signed on longer-term contracts that seem to want to be here... And I always say, you can't fool a fan. We know who really wants to be here, who's looking out the window, right? And Spurs have got one of those at the moment. Um, you can't fool us. You just can't. And and then we, we're we totally bought into that connection. And then, of course, once you're bought into connection, you 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 become you become a full-time 100% supporter again. And to see the, how they play and the intelligence by which they play, the modern way by which they play, the, the ability to play inside and out, I love that. The pace, the two-wayness of this of those two players, they've been so well-schooled, both two-footed, both got their heads up, both can dance with the ball, and their off-the-ball movement is stunning. Man, there's some, there's some coaches at Halen that need to be tapping themselves on the back because there's some good things happening there. And I just hope, we, you know, we were saying a few weeks ago, I hope that this team can develop so we can keep these players. And I'm thinking, well, if it's developing the way we're we're seeing, there's other young players from the country going to look around and say, I want to be part of what they're doing at Arsenal. They seem to be having a good time. Young players getting a chance. 
playing in the first team at 20 with single-digit numbers on their back. That's what I want. You know, that's what I want. And I think it's really, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. And yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what teams do now to scout us and to see how we can develop. And I think we've got players in our group now that can pro- solve the problems that we're going to be presented with and hope we can do it sharply enough so we can win more games and lose. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. And it's smart, a really smart point about teams maybe not scouting us properly, not understanding what we're doing. I, I think Arteta deserves credit too for the way the imagination and the creativity of, of how he pieced this together in terms of the personnel because that we are a back three team. I mean, you say it what you want. Out of possession, we play 4-4-2. Four, four, Fine. You know, two banks of four and then Odegaard and, and Aubameyang up front pressing when we're in our mid block or our low block. But in possession, we are a back three team. It's Tomiyasu, White, and Gabriel. And, you know, that's the shape. It is. And it's a three, two, five. And, you know, you can mix up that five any way you want. Um, You know, I think it's interesting that we're 38 minutes into this. We haven't talked about Shaka being selected. We haven't talked about that being the big decision point that I thought it might be or being in in any way controversial or, or controversy because the irony is this wasn't a Shaka game. I mean, I think he did fine. I think he got a little fortunate with the referee on various occasions. He was definitely going in to challenges in a, in a firm way. Uh, I think, I guess it was for the, is it the second goal where it could have been a foul on the edge of the box? And to be fair to Shaka, he he contests that really well to Just spare Ramsdale. angle with yeah. Smith Rowe, yeah. Yeah, to spare Ramsdale, because that, that is, I think, a bad pass and a mistake that could lead to a goal. Instead, he he does you know, the call doesn't go against him. His tenacity pays off, and we get the goal. So I think the big thing with Shaka there is just he fits into this team without having to be the centerpiece of it, and that works. And that double pivot worked in that way. Now, Can I say a quick thing on that? And it's yeah. not to say that Shaka was better than Party because he wasn't, right? Uh, Party was a key part of how we played. Uh, he was right in the hot spot of this game, and like the, the centre-backs didn't really get the ball to Party because... Spurs basically targeted keeping party quiet. In the 35 minutes in which we scored three goals, Chaka made 29 passes and party made 12, which you can read in all sorts of ways. But what it tells you is Chaka was a big piece and he's involved in all three goals. And I'm not saying he had a brilliant game. He had a very Chaka game, right? He did some good things. He did a couple of clumsy things. But if we think he wasn't really that involved or didn't do anything that significant, he was, you know, outside of our two center backs, he was the guy playing most of the connective passes and moving things along. And so as we take a perspective on the game, him and Party are just a very good partnership and they find their balance. If Party had been more open, uh, if he hadn't been swarmed by Kane and a couple of midfielders, Hoiberg and whoever, uh, swarming onto him, um, and I think it's in part why Ndombele was on that side. Um, he would have got more ball, but the fact that he took all that pressure gave Chaka the chance to look upfield, and he took advantage of it on playing a role in all three goals. Yeah, well, so let, let's take the three goals. Let, let's take them apart and enjoy them a bit. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring up Smith Rowe is I think that, you know, he is the beating heart of all three goals in some ways. Um the interesting thing is, I think a lot of people talked about Joe Willock, myself included, is, oh, could he be the Ramsey? And it's Smith Rowe that's playing that way a bit more in some respect. If you look yeah. at the goals, right? I mean, for 
the for his goal, he taps it in basically from center center of the box penalty spot essentially. Um, for the goal he gives to Aubameyang, he starts in our defensive third, gives a pass, gets blocked off, runs the length of the pitch, turns on the afterburners, and cuts it back. And for the Saka goal, Saka goal, he he's in deep central midfield on the left and plays a a beautiful. You're seeing eyeball to, to Saka that that breaks all the lines, takes all the Spurs players out of the game, and sets Saka away. So I mean that it is he is not just playing as some sort of left wing or a forward or a number ten. He is he's playing more box to box and he's doing it at both ends. So, well, Paul, I'll, I'll let you talk about the first goal for a second. I mean that is that is I think the single biggest thing that maybe is overlooked in this performance is what it means to Arsenal when we go ahead and going ahead as early as we did, you know, and again, we deserved it. We deserved this win. I think we would have won no matter what. I think Spurs were crap and we were better than them. But that, that goal, I I think once that happened, the light bulb went on and, and the players really saw that, that this could be their day. So, I mean, talk me through that goal that, you know, the player involvement in it and, you know, maybe just sort of how that goal becomes the, the key to unlocking the the big victory. Yeah, so like it's what about ten minutes into it, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we've had good play, but how often have we had good play that it doesn't turn into something? Yeah, twelve twelfth minute. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, uh, the first thing uh, I thought about when I I looked back at the goal was Ben White is under the radar at the moment. I think it's going to be interesting when you guys rewatch the game. Because I think Tommy Yasu's getting loads of credit, and he should. And I think Gabriel's getting loads of credit. But twice he progresses, he, he he wins two challenges against Kane or whoever's in his pocket straight after the other. The first is a header, and the second one is nipping ahead of him and playing the ball forward. And that's where the play kind of breaks loose. <clears throat> and he's Chakas receives it, uh, pings it to Smith Rowe, who plays it out right to Saka. Saka's kind of teasing and tempting right where you, we might have had Pepe. Uh, and like, I think Pepe's got all the skills to go to the byline, but Saka just does it more. And especially because that's Odegaard's corner, it's so important to have somebody who works well with Saka. And here he goes, not all the way to the byline, but towards the byline and uh, dinks it in through Re- uh, Reguillon's legs. And like Smith Rowe just does the classic... Aaron Ramsey, the timed run that looks so simple, clips it, uh, puts it in the net, and like the two boys just, you know, their breakfast conversation comes to life. It's simple, it's quick, it's direct, um, and the guys just find each other. It's really slick, quick passing, and they tear it through them. Um, And we basically saw it time and time again. We didn't get rewarded every time, uh, but, but it was a Beautiful little connection. Uh, Smith Rowe knowing when to make that run. Um, but it starts from winning those challenges deep. And Ben White wins two in a row that progresses us up the pitch. And I, I think- He showed great in uh, Scott's data, by the way. Scott, Scott posted oh, okay. a bunch of data on Twitter. And, and in terms of like passing contributions to goal and just his his involvement in increasing whatever it is goal likelihood or something yeah. um he he ranked really high he, he has really this high. tackle he does the reach around tackle if you know what i mean but with his foot where he'll get around <laughs> it, like 
you need to be like uh, a gymnast to get your foot around the player without fouling. He's always done this. Like, I think a lot of people got caught up in their shorts about how they were getting Brighton's uh, right center back. You're not. You're getting Leeds's right center back in a, a, a mid in a center back pairing. This is how he played, how he played for them. Uh, he's really progressive. Uh, he'll do two or three things a game that are eye-catching, but he'll do a whole load of nipping in front of the guy and winning the ball and getting you up the pitch quicker. He speeds us and he makes us direct and turnovers are the great playmaker. And mm, yep. he got two, turn- two, no- two turnovers in a row and the second one paid off. Yep. Uh, well, the second goal, though, Tim, is is one that I really like to highlight because I think it, it creates another important talking point, which is Aubameyang. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much to love about this game that it's easy to miss players or moments or performances that were key to it. The second goal I like because there's a lot of things. I like that the refereeing decision doesn't go for Spurs. There were a couple of those in the game. And the fact that we not just beat the crap out of them, but also they can feel aggrieved about the referee is fantastic in my view. Um, but... There's Shaka, you know, sort of sparing Ramsdale's blushes with his effort. There's Smith Rowe, you know, playing the initial pass and bursting forward. But, you know, we we always hear about Aubameyang, you know, can't play with his back to goal and all of the, the cliches about why Lacazette, why not Aubameyang, what is, but like brilliant center forward play. The energy mm-hmm. he put in this performance was great. He was always available and hustling. He won a ton of aerial duels in this game, I believe, and contested a lot more. The outside of the boot flick to send Smith Rowe away, the first touch to set himself free, the the beautiful sort of just perfectly timed run into the box from Aubameyang to arrive into the position. I mean, that's what he's great at, right? Arriving into the position where he's available. The cutback is the right choice. The finish with the weaker foot is first time and beautiful. It is a great goal that I think a lot of credit should go to Aubameyang for doing not just the end piece, but a lot of the stuff that we're sometimes told he doesn't do because he did it in this game. Yeah, absolutely. He he he's been doing it a little while. I think when he came on, um, well, I so I yeah. You you know, I never bought into the whole he doesn't care anything uh, any anymore uh, thing that kind yep. of circulated a bit last season. I really think that was about chance creation, and Arsenal never really looked any different when he wasn't playing anyway. Um, but what I love about the touch to Smith throw is sometimes um, a pass begs a run rather than the other way around. They used to say this about Ozil a lot. Ozil used to have that pass where actually he sees it before the runner sees it and goes, I'm, I'm going to put it there. So the fabled invitation, and, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, so you better go and run there because I've seen that space before you have. And that's, that's, that's the same sort of thing going on here with, um, with a Bamiyan because you can see when the balls play forward to him, Smithrow has a notion that it might come back to him. But just like if I, I bet if you watched it frame by frame, you can see the light bulb go off in Smith Rowe's head and he goes, oh, hang on. I think he's going to flick this round the corner. Yes, he is. I better get onto this. And it's that it's that provocative kind of, um, I don't know whether it's a pass or a flick or whether it matters, but it, it's the kind of play that provokes others into action. And it turns from having you know, successfully, if um, slightly hairily played out from the back and you think, oh, okay, right, few, it would have been easy to go, few, we got the ball to the halfway line now, we got away with that. But, you know, the, the whole point, obviously, of playing out from the back is exactly what happens in this goal. You commit everybody high up. So the fact that it's Hoiberg who's committed right high up on the edge of the Arsenal area, 
Um, that means he's not in defensive midfield anymore. And that means when Aubameyang comes to the halfway line, the centre half has to follow him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, instantly they're just pulled apart. And and incidentally, what what I think um, really showed Tottenham's dysfunction in this goal, that Tottenham picked the same midfield they picked against Chelsea. And I was, I wouldn't say worried about that, um, but that that was the slightly more adventurous thing for them to do. And I didn't think they'd do it. And the reason they did it against Chelsea was to press because they really wanted to press Kovacic and Jorginho with, with Allian and Dombele and to leave Hoiberg back. But I mean, <laughs> and Dombele and Ali just didn't do it, basically. They didn't press at all. And, and you know, Ali was substituted at halftime and given uh, Nuno's comments after the game, I think we can determine that he wasn't very happy about that. So they're kind of all over. It was the same midfield team, but didn't he swap the sides on them for some reason? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I imagine that was to get Ali into Xhaka, right? And that that's kind of my point. Like, what the hell is Hoiberg doing up there? Like, surely that was Ali's job. Um, but but anyway, like and again, I, I've never. I think we've always gone too far on this idea that Aubameyang can't do hold up play and things like that. No one's saying it's his strength, and no one's saying that like getting involved in the build up is particularly his strength either. But in these kind of moments, like this, this is transitional football, right? And mm-hmm. and I think he's a really good transitional striker to have. I think we've got lots of good transitional forwards now. And uh, whether the pen is beginning to drop there a little bit, or whether it is just you know a game, a moment in the game. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's fantastic play, great awareness, like brilliantly executed. And when the ball's pulled back to him, even on his left foot, you just don't doubt him for a second. I, I know he has his fair share of misses, but generally speaking, like they're they're rarely terrible in terms of they rarely go like a mile over the bar or a mile wide, like. He he's one of those. He's he's a slightly like risky finisher. Aguero's like this as well because he goes for the corners, and you know the the margin of error is small when you do that. But when it kind of just comes back to him like that, I wasn't thinking, "Oh, this is his left foot, mate." I was thinking, "This is in," and um, you could see yesterday he was hugely engaged. And that celebration, by the way, I mean that's not a coincidence. <laughs> he had that one prepared. <laughs> Just for one. anyone who's wondering what we're talking about, <laughs> it's the Thierry knee slide and Thierry's yeah. at the game. I mean, it. yeah, it's a perfect celebration for the occasion. It, it, it absolutely is. And nobody can convince me he didn't have that planned. Oh, come on. It's in, literally in the monster. sculpture out in front of the Emirates yeah. of Thierry Henry. Of course he's got it. I'm sure he... I mean, he does the face. It's not just the slide, yeah. right? And he's got the yeah. arms and the fists. He's got- Let me ask you a question, Tim. Honest question. Do you think he practiced that to get it right? Because yeah. it literally looked practiced. <laughs> he could well have done. He could well have done. I mean, obviously he was right next to them when he scored it. So it could have been a little bit opportunistic. But yeah, he had that one in the locker. And I think when you're going out for a game, um, we're speculating rehearsing celebrations. It's because you're, you're pretty damn determined that you're going to get on the score sheet. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and he did. Um, you know, the, the can I add quickly on it? So this was a goal we played out from the back. It was Ramsdale. It was that risky pass, but it's definitely an advertisement for ballsy play from the back. Then Chaka uses his big arse to shift Hoiberg. Had we had a different midfielder, I'm not sure he would have had the robustness to shirk off. Like the one reason it's not a foul is because Chaka's kind of arsing him somewhat effortlessly because he's got lead in his arse and he can easily shift him. And then he doesn't take the easy pass to 
Tierney, which is the obvious one. He he does a quick pause and then bangs it up to to Smith Row, which breaks that move open. And you guys have kind of covered it from there. But like the the genesis of that and why Smith Row and Aubameyang could run into so much space was Spurs loaded up horribly on Ramsdale and Chaka, and they Chaka's um, arse managed to turn it around for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Clive, the the funny thing is, y- you look at all of the goals, and only the third goal is like this, but there's four guys in the box for the first, four guys in the box for the second, and three guys in the box for the third. Um, the thing that I think is really changing and that really looked different about the way we attacked is that the ball goes forward. We recover possession, and the ball goes forward. And this is where I think Odegaard and, and Party. It makes such a big difference. And the directness of, of Smith Rowe. Smith Rowe is just such an old school footballer. I run forward. I pass forward. The ball goes forward. I go forward. I go box. Ball goes in net. Like that, That's him. He's like Neanderthal progressive player. Like just get me forward, get ball forward, get me in box, get ball in net. Like that's, that is him. And there's obviously a lot of technical quality there. But, you know, if you look at like the pass he plays to Saka, it's just sensational for the third goal. and But that forward momentum, I think Odegaard is the easy player to overlook in this game if you're just looking at the big moments. But his quality is dripping on all of these goals. And the funny thing is, if you look at the, the first and second goal in particular, like look at Smith. Look, If you go back and watch the first goal where Smith Rowe's standing when he scores it, look where Odegaard is. He's one foot away from him too. He's center of the box, found some open space that he's sitting in. He's crashing into the box for the second goal as well. And, you know, for, for that, for that, I guess the first goal, he carries the ball forward. He gets it off Shaka and goes and goes forward immediately. Off we go. So, I mean, I'm wondering, Clive, if you think that there's something changing with Odegaard here because the Odegaard we saw on loan was talented and helped us and improved and there were some injury issues, so it didn't quite come off all the time. But he, he had moments where he would flit in and out of games. The Odegaard we're seeing this season as an Arsenal player influential, energetic, pressing, covering ground, moving the ball forward at every opportunity. And I think it, it creates a, a greater urgency to our attack. I, he's one of those players that I think if in your mind's eye he was always going to be playing passes, you know, final ball passes for assists, maybe you haven't been getting that. But I think what he's doing is a lot more influential. He's stitching everything together and moving the ball forward from back to front. So I'm curious what you think of this, this Odegaard performance, but also the Odegaard role which is maybe, you know, a little more of a two-way player than the sort of mercurial playmaker we might have expected. Uh, yeah, well, you, that you might have expected. Um, I think yeah, um, he's a little more <laughs> two-way player than the mercurial playmaker <laughs> no. I might have expected. There you um, I think, um, yeah, it, you know, again, you can see this is where data is helpful. You can see the amount of pressures that he makes. Yep. So that you, you, you already know the answer to that one. So I think for, for me, the bigger change is, yes, he's got centrality. Yes, Party's got that. So we've seen that since last season. He really stood out West Ham away when it hit us all. But, you know, it's been a continuation. That's why teams are trying to stop us down the middle now because we they know we can get out. And the reason is his ability, I'm not sure which goal it was, but it might have been the last Saka's goal, actually. When it went to Odegaard, there was a risky square pass on immediately. But mm-hmm. he just has two touches to make that pass perfect. Do you know what I mean? And it's that decision-making that 
technique to move it one way and cut it the other way that creates the opening, which makes the next pass obvious. So Smith throws zigzag out to Saka, and we're, we're into step over land, right? And it's and and that's where we are. So I think his decision making as well as his quality is really really key. But the most important thing is, and it's been a consistent theme since post international break, is our ability to run forward as a group. We're getting five, sometimes six runners sprinting and outrunning their opponents. Burnley game was a really good game. We just left two to three goals out there. But we did the same things. We sprinted back. We sprinted. We transitioned on them. And we drove through them. We had like four against two on some breakaways. And it was there in that game. But the execution wasn't there. On a sunny day at the Emirates, when the pitch has been well watered, mate, well, those passes, they're not stopping. You know, this isn't this isn't Tufty Moor. Do you know what I mean? This is like this is a proper proper pitch, you know, proper Premiership ground, and those passes were zipping along at the pace we wanted them to go. And so, for me, I look for sustainable trends, and the sustainable trend is we are five laying them to death. We are getting five people up and three inside, and sometimes two on the outside. We've got, we've got people in each lane perfectly and they're being aggressive with their movement and they're committing to their runs. You know, when Aubameyang knocked it around the corner, his commitment to the second phase run, the secondary movement, was huge. And he, he 100 miles an hour, then he slows down at the box. He can slow down because of his original commitment. And then he can slow down, then he can stride onto the ball on his weak foot dull. It's a commitment to the run which makes the passing obvious. If you don't commit, you don't create the separation, you don't make the pass obvious. And so that tells me they are working on this on a training ground. Because it's not just one guy doing it, it's five, six guys doing it. Which means that this is a collective effort, this is one of the principles of play, and this is how we're going to work. And And what you're seeing is the players that are able to make those passes. And then we can say, okay, we get, we're given this many forward passes. We're not going square anymore. When you've got committed runs, you better pass forward or you're getting it. Do you see what I mean? And that's, that's the difference. It's the movement, the aggressive movement, as well as the quality of the pass. And we said on Friday, I think it was, have we got a superstar developing Odegaard? I'm asking myself that question. An Arsenal superstar or league superstar, I don't know, but he's 22 years of age, international captain, and he is improving by the minute. So where does this end? Right, he's obviously had a very, he was a child film star, shall we say, and he's now, he's now coming. He's got his first, he's got his uh, second, uh, his you know his first proper move as an adult, his first proper contract as an adult, and. He looks really at home at Arsenal. And he looks all right, the, doesn't he? Yeah, well, it'd be interesting to watch how his development, you know. Um, I saw something at the weekend, and I don't know the background, so I saw um, Brendan Rodgers bring on James Madison for Lookman at the weekend, and there was loads of boos. I'm not sure if it was at Rodgers because he chose the wrong player to take off. I don't know if it's at Madison. But it just goes to show you, right? You get your recruitment right, it's all good. You get it slightly wrong, and things you get questioned, and um, I think the club got this one dead right. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you know heat maps aren't always helpful, right? Because Clive, like when you look at a heat map, sometimes what they're 
telling you is, you know, like they can be confused by playing differently in two halves or the, the players switch sides. But I think the heat maps with Smithrow, Odegaard, and Saka are really interesting because they really do tell you, I think, what he's trying to achieve with the formation because Odegaard is all over the pitch everywhere. Smithrow is sort of left half space attacking. Zach is the right wing, you yeah. know, and, and that's the lane, right? So it's it's Tierney, Smithrow, Aubameyang, Odegaard, Saka. Yeah. And that's that. those are those five lanes. And it's really, I mean, maybe this is a chance for you to sort of talk a little bit about how Tomiyasu enables this, right? Because, I mean, I'm sorry. Look at the lineups we put out in those first three games trying to play this system. Marie, Chambers, Holding, no chance. No chance. Now it's White, Gabriel, and Tomiyasu. And oh, what? guess what? It looks totally different. And I think Tomiyasu is a real key to that because you cannot get Joy down that side. And that enables Saka to go be that sort of wide forward. And he doesn't need the support. And then on the other side, you have Tierney running the touchline as well. So, I mean, do, do you think that, that that's really the, the key is that that, th- that group of three at the back enables this 3-2-5 buildup? Yeah, and I, 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 we, we hoped it, it looked it looked this way on paper, didn't it? It looked this way. We knew we had Gabriel as a a real defensive monster. We know he's a little bit rash, but we think you know what? He could work. He does progress the ball quite nicely. He could work. Ben White, we knew what he was: interceptor, smooth on the ball, distribution of both feet, quite quick, a, a reader of the game. But he needed a bit of strength next to him. He needed something else so he can work from to cause trauma and distraction so he could sweep around. And Tommy Yasu is that trauma agent just smashes everybody in the air on the ground. When you give him the ball, it comes out of his feet really, really quickly and we're off to the races. So the balance is good. And it, it just looks neat to me. And it's also, and I know we've all you've all spotted it, all three of you, is it's enabled our other centre midfielder to stay in centre midfield. And I think that's really, really key. So we can now go and engage teams. When they go long, the second ball, we can take it because we've got two people there to sweep round. And when they turn around, they've got Odegaard saying, give it to me. Smith Rowe saying, I'll have it. Saka said, I'll have it. So you've got three escape artists right in front of you. They escape and we're off. Right? And so the system and the balance looks really nice. And um, I said, because I'm turning into you, I'm starting to worry that if we pick up a, an injury to any of these players, how do we repeat it? You know, and that's the that's the thing that's a worry for me slightly. But um, particularly the back players, really, I think they've 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 really shown how important it is to progress the ball, but make sure you win your duels in all different facets of the game. And I think that gives us a little bit of stability and stable, and that stable that stability is enabling us to play. You know, and I think yeah. that's really important. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Well. You know, you you made the point, and I think it's an important one, that we maybe saw a little glimpse of what could be against Burnley, but it was bumpy, it was rough, it was overgrown. And then when we got on that beautifully manicured pitch at the Emirates, well, then we saw what it would look like when it's properly manicured, when it's properly, dare I say... Resplendent? Manscaped? That's right. That's right. If you want to play like those Arsenal players did in the North London Derby, if you want to be victorious in life, if you want to see all of your moves come off, then the right thing to do is not have the Turf more pitch, have the Emirates pitch. The best way to get that is with Manscaped. I don't need to read about, about pants pumpkins. If you're new to the podcast, that's I get copy from Manscaped. Say, read this. Said something about pants pumpkins in their copy. I'm not going to talk about pants pumpkins. Just did it three times. Point is, here's what you do. 
Go to manscaped.com, use promo code ArsenalVision, you get 20% off and free shipping. You get the lawnmower 4.0, it's wet, it's dry, it has long battery life, it has contactless charging, or not contactless, but you just set it in the thing, and you, you get the idea. It has the different sizing things, it has a button lock. Look, it is simply said, the best purpose-built device for grooming. You're going to groom. You're going to groom, so get the tool that does it best, and it does it best. And then, by the way, they got the one for the nose and ear hair uh, called the Weed Whacker. They've got tonics and lotions and all kinds of things. Go to manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off and free shipping. At this point, I don't know who's left who hasn't done it, but you don't want the Turf, turf more pitch. You want the Emirates pitch. This is how you get it. Please go there. Please support them. They're great. Uh, also, Mint Mobile, what's their secret sauce? They're a mobile phone company that does not have stores and advertising, you know, all the, the um, what's what's it called? The, the overhead. That's the thing. They don't have the overhead. And so they pass that savings on to you. So they sent me a SIM card, and I'm like, okay, well, let's see. Pop SIM card in, 5G, beautiful service, everything great. You know the difference? It's 15 bucks a month. Unlimited text talk. That's pretty cool. Data on the United States, anyway, nation's largest 5G network. I mean, if you've got a teenager who needs a phone or a young person that needs a phone for an emergency purpose, like you don't need another $80 line cell phone. The point is they have a seven-day money-back guarantee. So you can just get the SIM card, pop it in, see what you think. If you like the service, it's 15 bucks a month. Done. I mean, it's just such an easy way to use the nation's largest, most powerful 5G network to get all the unlimited talk and text that you need. Go to mintmobile.com forward slash arsenalvision mintmobile.com forward slash arsenal vision to get your $15 a month service and it'll be shipped to you for free when you go to mintmobile.com forward slash arsenal vision. And I got to say guys that I have, um, I think done those as quickly as I ever have. So, you know, it's Darby day. We're talking Darby. It's not, not necessarily a day to, to feature the sponsors. We love the sponsors, but Clive's had enough of that. Beautiful link to Manscaped. Beautiful. You set me up, but but we got we got away from it a little bit. But I felt that it was okay to roll it back. I want to stay with you for one second, Clive. Um, the the thing that I think some people will say is, "Oh, second half, we you know we didn't keep our foot on the gas, and you know why, why didn't we just go crush them?" And the the one point I want to make is, I think the derby is a lot about adrenaline. I mean, we we even saw the goalkeeper cramping up at the end of this game. I think that you know adrenaline runs high. You're three nil up. And I think it would be easy to just be flying and start to think it's all fun and, you know, go out and just attack. And suddenly you you leave yourself exposed and you do something silly and the game's getting away from you. And I would have thought that at halftime, Arteta would have said, guys, this game's won. They got nothing about them. They're shit. Be professional. Refocus. Try to bring the adrenaline down a little so you can just do your job professionally. I was never nervous in the second half. Um, the funny thing is actually in the the pregame pod, we did a predicted a three, one. I thought Spurs were crap. They looked like crap. But I I don't personally have a problem with the way the second half played out. I think that's the professional way to just try to take the heat out of an occasion that is very adrenaline-filled. So do you have any thoughts on on what I would call a professional second half, but I think what some people might have felt a little disappointed about in terms of not building on on the big first half? Yeah, well, firstly, at 3-0, I was still nervous. Um, I was I was in the ground. At, I'm on supposed the to be whiskers, not you. Man, I'm telling you, anyone who's in the ground on the 4-4 felt the same as me, trust me. And um, so until, until, until very late on, I started to feel comfortable. When I started to see red seats in the Spurs end, I thought, mm, this is, we, th- we may have them now. Do you know what I mean? Well, that was at the half uh, hour mark for the record. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll tell you what, if you... If you watch, I know Paul has probably watched this. If you watch the very first 10 seconds of the second half, 
I think they go towards, no, we go towards Tomiyasu in the right-hand side, and he goes up for a header, and he absolutely cleans everybody up. And I thought, excellent. First five minutes, let's get after them. Let's make sure they don't feel they can push us back. Let's get into them. Let's smash them. And I loved it. I thought that set a turn. So you can always listen out for the halftime team talk. He went straight up and smashed them. And I thought after that, we were quite engaging. And we they had their moments, but I, I thought we were fine. The only time they scored was when we were literally down to 10 men. I think we'd have blocked the box if, if Shaka was on his feet still. Um, I don't mind what they were doing. I don't know what you guys think, but just moving the ball around, showing some assured control without always having to control the football, I think he's a good. You get your four-four-two block. You have people. He put on two sprinters in front of the two fullbacks towards the end of the game in in Nuno and Maitland Niles. I'm thinking, well, good luck getting past those two. Um, and I think it was just smart game management. And, you know, from the last three games, I know we've won the ball, and it's easier to say that it's all gone well, but I will say the last three games, the substitutions, the systems, the selections, how we play has been really quite well managed by the manager, you know, mm. really well managed and almost to perfection. And Okay, we butchered a few chances on the breakaway, but, you know, what we've done, how we've approached it, I can't find a fault with it apart from execution, you know, and I think, and there are other soft facts which we're all picking up on about the overall connection between the players, the club, the fans, and within the team, I think are all manifesting themselves into something that you'd be stupid not to get on board with and, and try to support. And the, the challenge is when the bad day comes, when the bad day comes and we kick one around there, how are we going to be? And how we're going to react and how we're going to recover. Yeah, and I think that's the, um, the the next challenge for this group, who some of them haven't had a, a really bad, bad day yet in some of them. So we'll see. You're right. But here's the great thing, right? We conceded a goal and that sucks. But when you've scored three, you still win, right? I mean, the, the point is, what I love about this game is we didn't make it a game of fine margins. We put this game to bed with a half hour or so of rampant football where we took our chances. And because of that, you give yourself some margin for error and you give yourself a much easier second half to navigate. And I just think, you know, under Arteta, if there's been one problem, well, there's been more than one, to be fair, but it's just been a game of two fine margins. Now, you can't always go out and score three goals. I get that. But, you know, if you can play attacking football like this, if you can be this direct and effective and incisive with your attacking play, and, and get the goals, you you make the game so much easier. And this didn't feel like a game of fine margins because we we went and took the heat out of it early um, and then took our foot off the gas, which I think was right. The only question, Tim, I have about taking our foot off the gas, though, is whether the substitutions came a little later than you'd prefer. Look, look we went into this game with every single first-team player available, I believe. And mm. this was supposed to be the idea of not having European football, right? Oh, you can concentrate on the league. You can focus on the league. And I realize it's very, very early in the European campaign, so maybe too early to say. But if we're going to be in this situation where players can go 90 minutes every Premier League, where we don't have to worry about them fading, where we do have a full, you know, first choice 11 that we can choose from, suddenly that does start to look like a pretty big advantage. So do you have any thoughts on on the timing of the substitutes and just the the, the freshness of the team in general and the ability to choose basically whoever he wanted? 
Yeah, it it makes a big difference, and also because most of them didn't play um, against AFC Wimbledon the other night either, mm-hmm. so they really did have a week off. Um, I, I think um, I think there's something developed. I, I think Clive's note of caution is right in terms of we, we've built a first eleven now, but it's the do we have like you know when when Tommy Asu takes a knock or something like shit, what the hell do we do then? Or we've seen several times with party already, um, but this probably isn't the day to worry about that. But what, one of the things I'm, I'm actually quite drawn to is um, the the idea of Tavares as a sub, actually. And this is probably something that I and maybe many others underestimated in terms of the value of having Tavares, because my, my view was always, and, and to some extent still is, that he was the least important signing of the summer in many ways, because really... The, the the range of outcomes for Tavares's Arsenal career are small because he's probably not going to be better than Kieran Tierney. So he'll either not be that good and go, or he'll be good and get sick of not playing and go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I tend to think like Tavares probably won't have another Arsenal contract. But what's been really interesting actually is his his effectiveness as a sub. I think he's a really good um, match finisher. Just because like he's quite chaotic. And I don't think I'd trust him that much to play for 90 minutes in an important game because he's so chaotic. But I actually think it makes him quite a good candidate to finish a game. Um, Whether you're doing what we were doing, which was defend it, in which case, yeah, stick him on on the left wing. Don't put him on at left back, but put him on on the left wing because he, when he gets the ball, he just wants to charge. And so that that's quite useful when you're in a position where you're kind of uh, looking to play within yourself a bit. Mm-hmm. And if we're, if we're trying to get a goal, then yeah, why not throw him on at left back and he'll do largely the same thing, I'm sure. So I, I'm qu- I quite like the idea of him as, as a finisher of games. S- Sambi, we've seen plenty of already. I, I do think um, substitutions maybe came a bit late. I view the second half slightly differently, actually. I was, look, this is, this is really small beer in the uh, in the kind of um in the scheme of things but i i would have liked to have seen us go for them still mm. i think there's a distinction here between because we've seen this before we've done it against chelsea we've done it against manchester united before go 3-0 up and then like call off the dogs in the second half the difference is chelsea and manchester united are good and we and Tottenham are Spurs are shit. Yeah, they are terrible. I really can, think we could have beaten them four or five nil here. Can I ask I really you about do. that? If we were a team that didn't have some of the demons in our very very recent past, I could see that happening. But do you think, in light of the significance of this win and just making sure it was secure, and a team that's still maybe not a hundred percent convinced of itself, that there's just that little seed of doubt in the back of their mind that may have may have prevented him from saying, yeah, go on, step on their throat and make it five, six, seven, you know. Yeah, quite possibly, um, to be honest. And and look, in a derby as well, we're all nervous when we're watching. Like I, The second half is something I'd probably go and watch back because like Clive, I'm still really tense during, during that second half. And yeah, can just I, can as I add my, on that, Tim? Because yeah, sure. The I'll, one thing yeah. I'm thinking with this is the second half isn't just... Uh, uh, a kind of an average. We we come out of the blocks pretty fast. Now, obviously, something happens as we go. the The further the game goes on, the more we think. Hang on, we've you know sixty minutes has gone and we got three goals. Maybe we we dial it back risk wise, but we don't come out in the second half 
to sit deep. We're doing, I'm watching it right now, 52 minutes I'm on to now. We're doing all of the attacking. We're really aggressive. So it's not, it wasn't the plan. It's not how we started the game, but something happens somewhere along the second half where we start thinking, you know what, 60 minutes, 60 whatever. Uh, of course, they score sometime around then. That that doesn't help either. That's at the point at which we say, "All right, let's let's bring down the variance options here and make sure if there if there is another goal, it's one." Um, but it doesn't start with us. It, it's not a game where we we started the second half saying, "Let's be cautious. We're going for them." Yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, and I'm I'm certain that Arteta didn't really want the second half to go like that. I think my other slight problem with playing like that sometimes is it's very difficult to not play like that anymore. So yeah. if if Spurs score on the 60th minute and again on the 70th minute, like you're fucked at that stage because you can't flick the switch. You're and, trying to get uh, a cold engine restarted. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. So that that's my yeah. Like I say, like small bit, and and I guess you could look at it the other way and say, well yeah okay you're saying Spurs are shit so they're not going to break us down are they really and you know I I suppose they did on on another day it would have gone to 3-2 that Lucas Moura deflected shot I I do think it just leaves you open a little bit but then again you know that's our first choice back five out there now with Xhaka and Partey in front of them like we've we definitely look more defensively solid Uh, like I I I had a notion the second half would go like that. And to be honest, I I still thought we'd win. I thought we'd win either way. It's just, this is the fan in me. I completely understand um, the players doing what they did and how much it was by instruction and everything else. And look, as a fan, you always want to win by more. But I I felt there was scope to win by more. I really do. Mm, I... I think that's probably right. And I sort of wonder if we had held it to 3-0 just a little longer, are the subs maybe like Pepe instead of Maitland-Niles? You know what I mean? Did did that tilt his thinking in terms of, should I go on and have a little fun at the end of the game here or should I go on and lock it down? And he chose to lock it down. I think it is interesting that Maitland-Niles, I, th- I think he's appeared in every game since the international break. Is that right? Am I right yep. thinking he's, yep. he's appeared in every game? So like, Pepe wants are- you to come on, by the way. He was literally yeah. about to come on. And, and there, I'll, just to add one thing on yeah, the mm-hmm. game, um, I think, and this is something that we've done continuously now, in the last 50 minutes of a game, how many dead bodies on the on the pitch do we have? You know, A lot of cramp, yeah. A lot <laughs> of cramp, a, a lot of people limping, you know, party, Tierney, Shaka in this game, obviously he hadn't played for a while, he was due to come off. Um, you know, a lot of players not ending the game strong. Tommy Asu just settling, you know, though he was a bit fitter in this game. So we've really sort of not quite got to the peak levels of fitness yet to really hammer these teams. Uh, and there was a 5-0 there for us if we were in tip-top shape because they weren't very good on the day, but we did fade. And I think it's more when you fade, you drop and you squeeze and you close distances and you just leave minimal effort required to keep them at bay. And I think we just chose that route in the last quarter. Yeah, and, and you may think of it as the old players that fade, but I think very young players still struggle to maintain a 90-minute fitness. So the irony is, I thought that the Smith-Rowe-Saka-Odegaard pipeline that had been very progressive, a lot of hard running, a lot of certainly uh, adrenaline you used up, I think they all faded, actually. And so that sort of, that very direct pipeline from from back to front sort of got short, short-circuited a little bit. Um the interesting thing, Paul, is that like the, the clear plan Tottenham had was to get the ball to, to Sun 
isolated one-on-one in that sort of left half space, left channel, and then their left, our right, and then build from that. And I just think they totally underestimated Tomiyasu, and I'm sure it won't be the first time he's underestimated, but I wonder how long that'll go on because he is just absolutely rock solid defensively. And I love the moment um, where Ramsdale palms away the the cane shot, and that's really good from Ramsdale. He takes it so early. And so I think you wouldn't expect him to shoot from there. Now, it might just be going wide. He gets a palm on it, but maybe not as strong as he'd like. And Tomiyasu, first to it, clearing it away, and the the sort of high five they share, both appreciating the work done by one another. I thought Tomiyasu, in a game where we weren't under the cosh by any means, and where he wasn't exactly you know contributing anything to the attack in a meaningful way, still managed to show his importance because once he was able to shut down the main route of attack that Spurs had planned, they didn't have a plan B. And I, I, I think that was a big part of how the game played out. So do you see it the same way? Do you see his his influence in shutting down Sun as one of the big reasons why Spurs really had very little offer? Yeah, and I think they also loaded up that t- side from time to time with Harry Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, like they definitely were lo- probing for He was weakness. hilariously shit, by the way. Like one of the goals starts from him. Party takes the ball off him after he just sort of like loses control of his limbs and falls to the ground. Do you remember that one? Uh, I don't know yes. which goal is it. It's Party gives it. So it's probably, it's the third goal, I think. It's Saka's goal because he ends up yeah. getting yeah. Uh, with the assist for Saka as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, Sorry, go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 150 million pound Harry Kane. Um, it's amazing, really. Uh, Clap, clapping an empty away and at the end of a derby. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Daniel Levy, the the ne- negotiating genius. Uh, it's lovely to see. 53 million pound and Dombele. Um, you start to feel better about some of your choices along the way when you, when you look at uh, Spurs, God bless them. Um, I, I think Tommy Asu has been great. I wasn't sure what we had there. We, you guys did the, the, um, the, what would you call it? The, the scouting video on him. And I thought what was in there looked really good, but you just don't know. Um, he's defensively so solid. He's fast. He's strong. He's big. He's mobile. Um, he's a force and basically teams are going to work out they're not getting any joy that down that side. If they're thinking they can get at Ben White and uh, pass Tommy Asu, it's not going to happen. And they're probably underestimating Ben White, by the way. Um, he's He's been excellent. He's you, you hear from Arteta's comments about him being disciplined and focused, and he's come straight in, uh, speaks good English and certainly good enough for this, and uh, hopefully he brings 120 million Japanese viewers with him. And we get a whole tranche of uh, Japanese supporters and a new generation here because this guy could be like uh, I said this about Tierney and a lot of people quibbled with it uh, in the early days. But he's a lifer. Tierney is not unless there's some weird circumstances, you've got him for life or for mm-hmm. the best part of. And you got for me, Tommy, like, where is he going to go? Th- this is where he wanted to be. He be, he's a lifer for us too. And when you have that kind of solidity on both wings from fullback, um, like we're just in great, you know, where's Gabrielle going to go? Um, ben White is probably the best part of a lifer here. As long as they all perform, as long as they get to the levels where 
uh, we love them, they love us, they're basically starting every game. You have your back four locked up for years, and you can build on that in front of them. Uh, Thomas Party, if he stays fit, and he, I believe he will this season, we'll start to see we've got him for years, right? Um, he's got the physicality and the athleticism to be a player. He's got the skills, he's got the smarts, he's got the vision of the game. Um, Ramsdale, we need to see a lot more of of him to really know who he is, but like we love what he is so far and the personality he brings. You got a hell of a back six there to build on over time. And I think Tommy Yasu, the way we use him as an inverted uh, fullback pulling into midfield, uses all of his strengths, doesn't ask him to overstretch his maybe it's not weaknesses but it's not his strength to get into the final third to overlap to put in crosses uh, i joked before about having gone and looked at highlights videos and they all stop right after in his attacking movements they all stop right at the moment where he kicks that ball in for the cross i've no idea where they go but no we're good mm-hmm. um so he's great at everything uh but putting in crosses in the final third and we have ways around that because we attack up the other side. Yeah. He's been great. And- he provides a platform. Uh, like, you can sleep at night with that defense. That's what I think. Uh, I was a little, you know, I, we were all very nervous about the Ben White thing after Brentford and was this a miscalculation? And now we can all relax and say, this all makes sense. This all It all works. makes sense. And it makes sense because they're complementary pieces. Well, we're going to be yeah. saying this a lot this season, right? Because I don't think, you know, Ben White comes off looking fantastic in this game, doing Ben White stuff, going and hunting down Kane up the pitch, giving the ball uh, in ways that, that help start attacks. In the areas where he's maybe a little weaker, you know, defending in his box, around his box, he, he has the coverage he needs in Gabriel and Tomiyasu. And, oh, by the way, Aaron Ramsdale. And, and, like, I tend to think that fans sometimes overrate saves. That most of the, oh, what a great save saves are actually just saves any keeper should make and the players hit it too close to the keeper. But then there are some saves that are worthy of being lauded and focused on. And the one he makes from, was it a Lucas Mora deflected shot? Yeah. That he tips onto the bar? And defies gravity. Yep. I mean, I have absolutely no idea hang how he does time. it. Yeah, the hang time is incredible on that. And Clive, I, I want to I do two things with you. One, just really quickly, maybe you could talk about Ramsdale. I, I, he deserves a mention. Look, I never thought keeper was the most important position. I'm still not sure. I'm convinced it's the most important position for us to have had to address. But it's not just what he's doing. You know, a little bit better distribution, a little bit better command of his area, whatever you want to say. There is a just a camaraderie with all of these younger players together and his character and who he is as a person that seems to be a bit more infectious. And I think we freshened up the back line. You know, Gabriel's relatively new. White's new. Tomiyasu's new. Ramsdale's new. It's a new group and they can grow together and kind of become their own thing. And maybe that's just part of it, the the sort of psychological side to it. Because, you know, I think it'd be wrong to suggest that, that Leno was ever bad I mean, he was a candidate for being player of the season two seasons in a row, but certainly in terms of attitude and and just the the character he brings to the position, there does seem to be a real enthusiasm about Ramsdale for Ramsdale that transmits to the fans and back to the team. So is the Ramsdale influence, sure, he still has to play well, but is it more than just about playing? Is there is there something more to it than that? Yeah, it always is, mate, for me. Um, you know, Alexis Sanchez, I thought, was a wonderful player, in my view, one of the best players has played at the Emirates for Arsenal. And um, but he didn't really connect to the fans. He just played for us really, really well and scored goals. 
All right, and if he connected, if our fans were all dogs, I think he would have connected to them more. <laughs> you know, Sixty thousand dogs at the stadium, they would have loved it. Yeah, and then there's another one who had some great moments, but he didn't really connect to the fans. Ramsdale's having some good moments, but he connects to the fans. We all love him. It's very simple. This, you know, um, you got to you got to have that connection, and I think this is something that the the, the club is doing. I also think it's a way of managing modern media, shall we say. You can't manage 20th million Arsenal fans with a keyboard, but you can manage the match-going fan, the whole experience, the 4,000 away fans, by respecting them, by talking to them, by treat, by giving but them their shirts. that transmits, because the other 40, 20 million fans are watching well, that, that's and they going, feed off that energy. Yeah, that's yeah. where I was going. <laughs> right? yeah, so you, you can't <laughs> you can't manage 20 million, but you can manage the, the 55,000 at the Emirates. You can make sure you, you, you show that you're doing something for them that transmits to the crowd. You can make sure you you operate as a better organization, a better team that's prepared. You can make sure you respect the match-going fan, home and away. And once you do that, once you create that connection, everybody else, those 20 million, start to watch. And this is how you manage the modern world, the modern media. But you have to, you can't be the hostage of talk sport. You can't be the hostage of all these other chat shows out there waiting on multiple YouTube channels, waiting to smash you on the head every time you do something wrong. You can't manage that, but you can manage your own show. You can manage what you can control. And I think it's been a direction, a strategy from the club from top to bottom to make sure they are connected to people. And then from that small shoot, it then fans out to the global club that we actually are today. Right. So I think this is something that Ramsdale brings on board. And I've said it before, you look at Arteta's interview, as soon as he talks about him, he bursts into into laughter. The, the poor kid had to knock off his Instagram comments before he even signed for the club because of, you know, dumb reporting and people taking bits of information and then creating their own view and slagging him before he'd even signed because they've decided it was too much money, you know, and without knowing the strategy going forward. And, and now, with it, as soon as you saw the signing video, you thought, mm, hold on a minute. Some people thought, this guy's a nice guy. You know, then he starts playing well, and then it goes from there. And just give it a go, right? And I think what they're trying to do is to have these players that are transmitting effort, work rate, desire, as well as technical quality and physical quality on the pitch, and their motivation seem clear. And once you get a clear group of people with the same motivations, you got a chance. And then you're at the hostage of events, and the ball is round, and the grass is green, and we go from there. But you got a chance when everyone's on board in the same place. And I think we've seen the start of that. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely so excited for everybody who's been through the bumps we've been through over the last five years. And we've got a few more to go yet, but we've seen the start of something different. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, all in all, the day just went about as well as you could ask. I mean, could it have been 5-0 instead of 3-1? Maybe, but like certainly from where we were, I, I don't think you can have any complaints. I think what Ramsdale offers in character and the connection he's making with that Let's call it what it is, back three. You know, if you want to call it a back four, fine. I mean, whatever. It, it's beautiful. And there is a there is a foundation of players who will grow together in this team. There are positions that will need to be refreshed again soon. Um, but for now, you can at least see the path back to, to moving to moving upward, which was harder to see a few weeks ago. Tim, a couple of, of little 
things that we can pick out of this game. One thing, just by the way, Arsenal fans love nothing more. Maybe not Arsenal fans, just fans, online fans. Love nothing more than making a compilation of all the refereeing decisions that went against them in a season and saying we could have been second in the league if these decisions hadn't gone against us. And interestingly, those compilations never contain the decisions that went for you. This was a day to get all of those decisions back. <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> Couldn't happen at a better day than Derby Day. But like, did you did you sort of enjoy? I mean, because look, we know two things will really, really upset you. Losing Derby and also feeling like you didn't get any calls. And Spurs didn't get any calls, and I loved it. I'm curious, do you have any sort of thoughts on like the Shaka maybe sort of foul, the Harry Kane maybe sort of penalty, and just the the fact that like Shaka gets out of that game with no yellow card? (laughs) It's it's absolutely sensational. He just shithoused his way around the pitch without getting a card. Do you have any thoughts on on maybe us getting finally the rub of the green with the with the calls? Yeah, and and look, this is um this is part of some of the directives as well. VAR is interfering um a lot less in games this season and it is much, much better for it. Um as as a very, very strong VAR skeptic, it has been much, much better this season. And and in the ground, I've not felt like it's an oh like I've not felt like it's the sword of Damocles waiting to take everything yep. away. Um, quite as much so I'd, I'd still prefer not to have it at all but this is much better so I, I think there's a bit of that as well I think for example the cat the white on Kane I think last season that would have been pulled back and probably given a penalty but obviously there's also the the, the quote-unquote let it flow directive and uh, and this is quite interesting actually because one of the things the Premier League seems to do is have like a new thing every August that they're going to crack down on or that they're going to do and then it, it like it always follows the same pattern like do you remember a couple of years ago they decided I think correctly and I think they should have persevered they were going to like really uh, clamp down on shirt pulling in the penalty area from uh, set pieces and I kind of said look in the first few weeks there might be dozens of penalties but you'll soon learn and everyone and you went, figure it out yep. <laughs> yeah yeah and everyone went oh this is rubbish there's penalties being given all the time and so they just stopped doing it and that's what tends to happen with a lot of these directives is a directive comes in it's it's interpreted too much to the extreme and then they just and instead of just going, hmm, why don't we try and find a middle ground? They just abandon it. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that's what what's happening here is they did that kind of whole let it flow thing, which some referees seem to interpret as no blood, no foul, which was not really in the spirit of the thing. I think basically what happened was the Euro, and and this often happens after international tournaments, right? <laughs> because international tournaments are literally refereed by the best official from each country so mm-hmm. the, the the standard of officiating is very very high and because people particularly in england think like the rest of the world is just one big country um and that they're not separate entities they go look look at how good the refereeing is everywhere else and it's like no no that's the best referee in every country that's not representative so you get international tournaments they're really well officiated and and correctly people go okay let's what did people like about the Euros? Less VAR interruption and the games flowed a bit more. But what people meant by that was, you know, not bothering with the pissy fouls where someone just sticks their arse out and falls over. The Premier League initially interpreted that as, let's just let everyone break each other's legs. Um, and then like poor Harvey Elliott gets, um, you know, literally gets the the brunt of that. And then I think 
that what they've done is instead of doing that thing, they usually go, well, go, all right, let's completely abandon it now and go back to what we were doing, that maybe they've hit a bit of a middle ground. And mm. so I think that we probably hit a bit of a sweet spot yesterday where they're doing better with VAR by basically semi-abandoning it. Um, there's a lesson in there. Maybe the more you abandon it, the better it gets. But anyway, that's my thing. Um, but also like maybe they fine tuned that whole, let it flow thing a little bit more. I think last season, this game would have been officiated very differently. And obviously I'm going to say this cause I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan and it went our way, but honestly, I think it's better. I do think it's better. I do like that. Let it flow, um, you know, applied correctly. I do like less VAR inter- in- intervention and, and and honestly, I think as a spectacle, the game was better for it. When I think about the two North London derbies last season, which were very fractious, broken up, pissy little games, really the pair of them, that this felt a lot more. This felt a lot more like um, a game that, to quote Clive, had its own temperature and was allowed to have its own temperature. And yeah, obviously it went our way, but it, it's not like we were kicking them all over the shop and getting away with it. I, I think maybe we got a little bit lucky with that white on cane thing. And and look, maybe maybe it was just a one-off. Maybe referees getting a little bit wise to Harry Kane now. Um, I was just, I was thinking that exact same thing yeah. too, which is that this is a player who tries to buy penalties to get himself back into games, and he hadn't done anything yeah. all game. And I agree with you. I think that's reputational. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so maybe something's turning around on him. That will be borne out in the fullness of time. But yeah, yeah, like. I, may, Maybe we did get a bit lucky, but then again, I in, in that respect anyway. But then again, I do think that this is largely how games have been officiated this season. I don't think this is an outlier. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, if we're going to talk about dodgy decisions, I think we had at least half a shout for the penalty on Gabriel getting barged in the back in the center of the box. Um, was it Sanchez that came through him? Um, anybody yeah, remember that? I, I know we did that. enough good things. Yeah, it's I funny, think- we have a... We have a, a photographic memory of calls that don't go our way when we're losing games 1-0. When you win them 3-1, everyone says, well, I don't really remember that one, actually. But Yeah, you know, I remember just- back, back post header from Aubameyang, and Gabriel was was coming in to head it in, and he just went down too early because it was a mm-hmm. foul, but um, he didn't stay up long enough to make it a dead cert. So there you go. Yeah, to, to get the full brunt of the... Was it Sanchez through his back? I don't know. Maybe. Of course he was. <laughs> yeah, of course he was. <laughs> He's stupid. Um, but Paul, I- I'll give you sort of a fun one just real quick and we can, we can start to wrap up and get out of here. But like the other really interesting repercussion here is I remember the days of power shift and right. Wasn't that the, that was the funny thing that we made fun of them power shift when they want to finishing below us. But to be fair, it pains us to say it. There has been a bit of a power shift and Arsenal has been behind Spurs. This feels like, you know, two ships passing in the night a bit. Um, their squad looks lumpy to me. There are some unhappy players there. The coach looks like he doesn't have the players he wants. Remind you of any team you've seen in the past few seasons. Um, his system doesn't look like it's working. He's calling out his players in the press. Their biggest star is either some combination of past it or just not happy being there. They have a player in Delhi Alley who, I, mean, I don't know what what he is now, but a, sh- a, sh- a shell of whatever he, he once was. Um, that team is bad. They've been bad. I said they were bad going into this game and everyone was mad at me for jinxing it. And I, by the way, understand that. It totally, totally warranted, but it worked out for once. Um, is is this a, an important moment also because it may signal the beginning of a return to a period where Arsenal are in the ascendancy and Spurs now have to go through through their rough ride? 
You know, they, they've gotten rid of their, they didn't, they never had an Arsene Wenger, but Pochettino was sort of the closest thing they've had to a quote unquote successful manager for a series of years, even though they won, let's reiterate nothing. Um, he's gone. I don't know that they have a solution for that. Mourinho was a disaster. Nuno doesn't look much better. This, yeah, the squad's a mess. Is, is this it? Is this the, the, the critical turning point in this relationship with our hated rival? Um, it could well be, and I don't normally feel that way. Uh, Nuno was deliciously the manager of the month last month, wasn't he? Um, and so they're going to have to endure with him for a little while. I thought he'd be doing better than this. Uh, like, I do actually think he's pretty good tactically. And I thought he was a good fit for this Spurs side. It, it feels like Moyes to United to me, but yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but like they had Mourinho before this. And like <laughs> they are a very good attacking, counter-attacking team. I mean, like they're well set up for it in terms of personnel. So they should have been able to make something happen with this. Um, what's amazing to me is that Daniel Levy, the genius that he is, um, he should have just, he had Pochettino. He, like he's ended up spending all that money that he never spent for and with Pochettino right after Pochettino left. It makes no fucking sense. He should have spent this money revitalizing the squad for Pochettino. He had everything. Like, what a sliding doors moment that was that he decided not to back Pochettino, not to turn around and say, you know what, I'm going to refresh the squad for you instead of Mourinho and now Nuno. I mean, and Dombele was $53 It's It's... Uh, that is the sliding doors moment um, mm. and how they get back from there. Uh, back to the point about Arsenal, like I look ac- across Spurs and I don't really like any of their players. There's a couple, right? If you were a neutral, um, there's a couple of these players you'd think, yeah, yeah, you know, son or whatever, um, if you're of a mind. But you like, who... Who's their academy ki- kids here? Uh, Skip, uh, uh, Jaffa Cakes, uh, uh, Tang- Tanganga. Huh? I mean, Tangerine Skip. Jaffa Cakes. Um, I, I love the name Skip though, because it, it it literally just sounds like a big bin. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is where he belongs. To be fair, and like and, the, and their whole club. The, I'm not saying like that their supporters don't like these guys. Like, they're fine. But if I'm a a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old coming to the Premier League and looking for teams that excite me, there was a few a few years ago, it worried me that we'd given up the crown of the team to be excited. I look at Spurs, I'm like, there's nothing here that moves me. There's nothing there in their football, in their direction, uh, on the pitch in terms of people looking. At it. None of it makes any sense. Can can you tell me what a Brian Gill is? <laughs> Hill, Hill, uh, like Hill. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit lightweight. He's a he's a winger. Uh, he's a good dribbler, um, but he's so far away from being enough to move the needle on these guys. You know, I, I was a bit worried when they got him in the summer, and I looked at our signings. I'm like, how? Like you look across our six signings, they all make sense. Uh, they all contribute. They all provide to the clarity, the direction, to the style of play. Um, oh God. I think it's the, a point is that the guys that were supposed to be good for them aren't. Like, Ndombele is not 
playing well. Giovanni Lacelso is not good. Like and Dombele was I, this was the absolute oh. darling of the stats community, wasn't he? They yeah, and, fucking yep. loved him. And he's a guy a who can dribble time. and do nothing else. It, it, the point is, like, it hasn't worked. And if you look at the two things that you'd say they could still kill you with these guys, it's Son and, and Kane. Yeah. Son is, you know, 29 and probably wishes he had moved on. Kane definitely wishes he had moved on and has dodgy ankles. And there's there's really very little behind that. Lucas Mora, also 29. So, like, their, their era is ending and they don't have the incumbents. Our play, you know, our, our era of aging players, most of them have moved on except for Aubameyang, and we will have to have an incumbent for that. That has to be solved, but we have him. I don't know. I mean, Clive, I don't, you know, it's very funny because a few weeks ago, you would have said there's a couple weeks left for Arteta to save his job. He has done that. Now it's over to you, Nuno, because I think he's in that same position now where he's got a couple of weeks to potentially save his job. He clearly wasn't the guy they wanted, um, which means that, you know, unlike an Arteta where there was a lot of backing internally, you wonder how committed they would be to him at all. They don't really look like they know what they want to be under him. And it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting time. I, I, I mean, this isn't a Spurs podcast, but laughing at Spurs is always enjoyable. So before we say goodbye, I thought it was worth it. Do you think that, that we can throw a little dirt on their, on their coffin or is it just a bit soon for that? Yeah, it's just decisions. We've made some history, you know, bad decisions recently, and, and so have they. They got bored with Pochettino, really, and should have looked at it and realised what he was bringing to the club. He's given them some of their biggest, happiest moments, and I know it didn't end in trophies, but they had respect. They built their infrastructure based on, you know, Champions League money. They were able to go and gamble on the fact that Pochettino was there, much like we did with Wenger. They gambled the training ground. Again, Pochettino had a massive influence on that and what happened there, how they used data. He brought that all in. You know, the, the guy was decent, right? I don't like, don't like to admit it, but he was decent. But they got bored of him. They decided once they got to Champions League final that they were some, they'd arrived. And so they go and spend 50 million a year on Mourinho. And, and people have worked out their tricks. So nobody was buying you know, their players for 60 million like Ericsson or Rose anymore. They're thinking, no, nah, we're not doing that for you anymore. Carl Walker went, but we're not going to do that. They lost their build-up through Dembele and replacing people like Hoiberg, for example. So the Dembele centre midfield is gone. Deli Ali has lost himself. Um, Son and Kane, that, those three up front, they were good players, right? So you can't deny it. And their full-backs are much weaker. Their centre-backs are aged now, the Valrath and the Tongan. They, you know, they're, 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 they're no longer there, one, and they're, they're just aging and replaced them with Mustafis all over the place. So they've got no stability. They've got no stability. They wanted to be this big club, almost like they were fattening themselves up for a sale, and then COVID come along. They wanted to get their revenues on their ground. It didn't quite happen. It will happen. They've got some decisions to make. they got to, they got to reset. And this is what I've been saying for a little while now. Spurs have a problem. They don't know it's here yet. Well, now we can all see. Right, and now we can all see it, and it's like this has been in the post for a while, and Son and Kane have masked it. Much like maybe for some people, RFA Cup wins masked where we were actually going. And yes, we have got people out of our dressing room, but it's cost us a bad clone to get rid of out and pay them off. So we're on the way back, but when our, when our year-end results come out, it won't look healthy, but then next year it might look a bit better. You know, and so we're on the way back. We've accepted where we are. They haven't yet, and their problems are to come. 
And I can't wait unless Nuno goes back free and says, you know what, I might as well go down fighting, go back free, cut my three kilometers centre backs together and hit my front three and see what happens. And unless he does that, he's toast because he has no support. Fifth choice is not good. Everyone knows he's not really solidified, so the players are going to check out on him. In fact, it may have already happened, as we saw on Sunday. And I, I think we'll finish with this, Tim. He deserves a, a mention. We haven't talked about him a lot. Talked about him a lot when we were down, so let's talk about him before we say goodbye. Mikel Arteta has every reason to be beaming, to feel pride about this. I, I feel certain that he was heavily involved in the recruitment of the new players, in the vision for what the system was going to be. You know, he was very specific in what he needed, I believe. Some of the moves, like White and Ramsdale, people were very skeptical. They look okay so far to me. Mm. But some of the moves, like Odegaard, on a permanent move at the price we paid, look like a masterstroke. Tomiyasu, a masterstroke. Uh, Sambi and Tavares, again, same thing. So Edu certainly deserves some credit there. But between that and Arteta devising this system and it starting to look like, you know, it really makes sense. It, it is very easy, just like when the, the, the bad results happen, to over-index them, especially. I mean, just... If you want, just go back and look at the lineups we put out for those first three games. That doesn't excuse them, but it may help explain them. These these three games don't fix everything, but is it fair to say that Arteta once again has slipped the hangman's noose um, <laughs> at a moment of darkness and, and reminded everyone that he's got something about him with a vision that seems certainly, you know, if not, look, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to overcommit one way or the other. But I think it is fair to say that this win coming off of two functional wins, I think has everybody back on side willing to see where it goes from here. And and he deserves all the credit in the world for engineering. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's ridden this out and and we have, we all have to be fair and say that because we all said that this game was, was the really key one and Arsenal won it convincingly. So he definitely has, I, I think, um, I, and I share your desire not to overcommit because I'm still not quite on the, this is absolutely the guy. I, I think for me, I, I'm not, I'm not thinking about it that much about, you know, whether he's the right guy or whatever, just because, I mean, first of all, I think it, it's clear that the club are really behind him. But I think the thing is for me at the moment, you're seeing a lot fewer sackings, I think, in the Premier League. And I think that's that's largely because of COVID and clubs don't want to be paying managers off. But I also think and have thought for a while that the managerial market is depressed and there are more kind of big teams or teams with aspirations to be big teams than there are big managers. And one of the things that I think has probably saved Arteta, certainly during last winter, is what does the market look like? Like, if you get rid of Arteta, like, who do you get? Look at, like, Everton had to get Benitez. Um, Shit, look who's coaching Barcelona. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're in, like, a whole world of trouble, but uh, financially. But, but like, Everton aren't and Spurs aren't. But look, they, they really, like, they had to go fourth, fifth in their lists this summer. It, Crystal Palace had to do that as well with, with Vieira and take it like Crystal Palace kind of almost took the Arsenal route in kind of gambling on a, a youngish manager, albeit Vieira had infinitely more experience than Arteta. He had a couple of managerial jobs, but n- none really with the profile of a Premier League team. And he wasn't great at Nice. And they've just had to go, they had to work down their list a bit and go, Phew. 
okay, let's 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 go with this, like new projects, um, you know, younger players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas Everton have gone for Ancelotti and Benitez recently, who are, who were good coaches, but probably aren't really anymore for not not for clubs who are aspiring to kind of really move up the table. Spurs had to settle on Nuno, and we all know they set, settled is is the word there, like very Nuno, publicly, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Nuno, Nuno didn't just leave like Nuno left Wolves because he'd run out of ideas at Wolves and he's walked into the Spurs job and uh, there are a lot of managers like this at the moment who are kind of hanging around quite a bit just because there's a real paucity of other managers on the market so like one of the questions you know we don't necessarily have to ask as fans because it's not our job but a club has to ask itself is if we get rid of this guy who the hell do we bring in? Because <laughs> the market's so sparse, and, and and don't like. I think that's played in Arteta's favour, and so we might be moving back into an era where managers do get a little bit of um, patience. Um, so mm. I, I think about like David Moyes at Everton. Like everyone remembers that for eleven years he was great at Everton. There was a season where they finished seventeenth, mm. and in this day and like in the middle of his reign, in this he'd have been sacked. Like, uh, well, maybe not in this day, but, you know, pre-COVID, like, let's say that happened in 2017, 18. He'd have been sacked well before the end of that season. But so so maybe we are moving into an era where managers do get a little bit more patience. Um, and, and look, it, it will be really, really interesting to see. And, and I guess as someone who really vouched for us um, getting Arteta because I was curious about it and I really wanted to see where it would go. Well, maybe I'm kind of getting what I wish for because now he's got his players, now he's got his system, and so now I'm going to see where it goes. Like this, this is almost like the start for Arteta. Yeah, and I, I think we said going into this season there are really no more excuses. Then the irony is the season starts massively full of excuses because half the team's missing with COVID and whatnot. Um, but now, 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 there's really no excuses. And to be fair, since the now, now, now part, since the part we always joked about, the season starting after the transfer window, so far so good. Three games played, three wins, including a hammering of Spurs in the Derby. I think he deserves huge credit. Look, I haven't always believed he could get it done. I still want to see consistently effective attacking football from Arsenal under Arteta. This was brilliant. Um, I enjoyed the absolute hell out of it. I do think these ships are passing in the night, and now it just has to be confirmed. I mean, you could argue that Brighton is a harder game, that they are a better team, a better coach team, and will provide a bigger challenge. I'll be very interested to watch them go up against Vieira's Palace tonight to see what they're about because, you know, that's that's really what it boils down to. We have, um, I believe it is it is Brighton next, right? Yeah, Brighton away on Saturday. So, that and, and we've been good against Potter's Brighton for the most part, I think. Is that right? Actually, we were good last season. The season before, maybe not so much. You know what? I'm off the rails, so why don't we just stop? It's fine. It's two hours. No one's listening anymore. Um, I think we can leave it there. First half rewatch for patrons tomorrow. And uh, yeah, obviously, another podcast later this week and, and a whole lot more to do to celebrate this victory. And more than anything, I just I, I hope you, wherever you are, I hope you just enjoyed the hell out of it. I said at the beginning of the pod, when when things are going poorly on the pitch, when the football isn't delighting you, the analysis takes over and the emotion is less of it. You know, you get less of that punch the air joy and laughter and celebration. This was just unbridled joy. And, and I, I loved it. It was great. And it does have us looking up the table again. <clears throat> and I certainly think at a minimum, 
a European place, some kind of European place is back on now. And we can, we can try to go achieve the goals that we would have set for ourselves at the beginning of the season. So the project to use that, that word again, feels very much started now. Uh, and now it's just a matter of, of where we go from here. Uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paul. Woohoo. Clive's on Twitter. Clive, PFC. Thank Clive. Thank you very much. Tim's on Twitter. Roberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. I will let you know that it is the 27th of September, which means we've got three days left of our fundraiser. And, and to be fair, it's slowed down quite a bit um, having achieved our goal. I know how you set a goal. You say, here's what we want to hit. We hit it. Couldn't be more proud and thankful for everyone for doing it. But if you do want to go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com, click donate and give to the Arsenal Foundation the last few days, uh, there's still some time for us to, to send plenty of money to a good cause and celebrate the club being great and not just the charity uh, attached to the club being great. So that'll do it for us. Uh, enjoy your week celebrating uh, in the face of any Spurs fans, friends you may have. We love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, right? No. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.